Here now with more, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor Newt Gingrich. Mr. Speaker, um, I, this is what America lasts and what happens to the world if we have a, a weak American president. I want to get your general thoughts. You're more of a professor and historian than, than you were ever a politician. Uh, your take on this, uh, I, I don't even think you can compare Joe to Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain looks strong compared to Joe, in my view. No, I, th I think that's right. I mean, Chamberlain was a very strong political leader who had a strategy. Uh, unfortunately, with a personality like Adolf Hitler, that strategy didn't work. Um, it's, it's, it's very bizarre. You have uh, Biden yesterday saying, yes, uh, Putin is a war criminal. Well, what does that mean? It means nothing. Uh, you have Biden saying we're going to really cut them off and make the sanctions work. And then we learn uh, from uh, the uh, Free Beacon in Washington that, in fact, um, the Biden administration has already promised the Russians that if they can get an Iranian deal, they will waive the sanctions for at least $10 billion of uh, Russian construction companies going into Iran. Uh, you go through item after item. Uh, it, it struck me, and I just wrote a newsletter on this, that you had Zelensky talking about an immediate, urgent, now crisis. And you have Biden talking about months and eventually and sooner or later. Uh, and you could tell this when Biden spoke two nights ago to the Democratic National Committee's fundraiser. And in the entire speech, there's one sentence about Ukraine and Russia. And that sentence is that if we had more green fuels, things would be better. Now, when you can reduce the tragedy that you and I and everyone watching has seen uh, in Ukraine, the viciousness, the war crimes, the brutality, and it gets totally ignored by the president of the United States uh, in a speech, you know that there's something profoundly wrong uh, with the Biden administration. And frankly, whatever's wrong with Biden is 20 times worse with Harris. Harris's performance in Poland was so humiliating to every American to have her laughing when asked about refugees from Ukraine. I would say Harris should never again be allowed to leave the United States because she is such a continuing embarrassment uh, to the American people. And she brings the United States in disrepute. Nobody in the world thinks this administration can lead. Nobody in the world is going to rely on the guarantee of uh, Joe Biden, who has consistently lied, lied about Afghanistan, has lied about Ukraine. Uh, it's, a, it's truly historically a dangerous moment uh, for the United States and frankly, for the entire human race. They're not even serious. I mean, maybe you can make sense of how, why they brought in the TikTok influencers into the White House with, <clears throat> with pre-screen questions. Basically, they're propagandists. Maybe you can explain what Jen Psaki couldn't explain, and that's the logic behind giving Ukraine drones and javelins and Stinger missiles but they won't let Poland give them the MIGs that they have. And if you can extrapolate out the meaning of AOC's comments, um, I would I, I'd probably give you the gold star for being a genius because it makes no sense to me. Well, no way. You, you just you just threw three very different questions at me. Um, yeah. Let me start with uh, I think the whole I think the whole thing about MIG-29s is nuts. 
Uh, if, if we're going to put in anti-aircraft missiles to shoot down so, Russian aircraft, if we're going to give them equipment to kill Russian tanks, the fact that we allow Ukrainian pilots to fly MiG-29s out of Poland or, or Germany or wherever they come from strikes me as a non-issue. Why would you allow Putin to define what you're allowed to do, which is exactly what Joe Biden did? Uh, and I think that there's no rational difference. In terms of AOC, look, her version of climate change is a religious experience, it has nothing to do with reality, has nothing to do with facts. And as a religious fanatic in her own right, she can say anything she wants to because it has to be true because it's what her religion told her to say. The fact that it's not true factually makes no sense to normal people. Uh, and in fact, Native Americans are being punished like everyone else by having to pay vastly too much for gasoline and, and oil and natural gas because of the policies of Joe Biden. So in a sense, this administration is punishing Native Americans, not protecting them and helping them. I think uh, that that's how I would frame that. Uh, let me, we could look to the past. You're the historian. Um, we watched Ronald Reagan. He, he never put a single American uh, foot on the ground when the former Soviet Union went into Afghanistan, but he did provide them Stinger missiles. And those Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen made all the difference. He did provide the, the freedom fighters, the Contras in Nicaragua, the weaponry that they needed. Uh, that proved successful. Then you got the Trump doctrine, which took out the caliphate that grew under Biden and Obama. He just bombed the living hell out of them uh, or took out Soleimani with the same principle, took out Baghdadi and associates, no American boots on the ground and took out the Al Qaeda leader in Yemen. I think we can learn both from Trump and we can learn from Reagan how to do this and win without risking American lives. Your thought? Sure. Well, no, absolutely. The thing that's frustrating about this administration, whether it's fighting inflation at home or dealing with crime or dealing with foreign dangers, is we know what works. We've lived through it. We lived through it for eight years with Ronald Reagan. We lived through it for four years with Donald Trump. If the price of oil went back to where it was under Trump, we would strip Putin of two thirds of his daily income. We would cripple him automatically by doing that. The very fact that Biden would rather buy, buy gasoline and oil from Venezuela, which is a dictatorship, Iran, which is a dictatorship, Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship. They're OK to Joe Biden. But now Texas, Oklahoma, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, they're really dangerous places. Uh, you, you'd have to say that by any legitimate standard, these people are crazy. This is not about politics. This is not about normal behavior. They're nuts. <clears throat> They're out of touch with reality. The world doesn't work the way they think it's going to. And frankly, I hope that the new Republican Congress in January will look very deeply at, at for example, how wrong our intelligence community has been, how wrong Milley has been as the worst chairman of the Joint Chiefs in American history. Remember, he was wrong about Afghanistan. And then he turned around and said the Russians would be in Kiev in three days. He and Putin apparently had the same timetable. The Ukrainians didn't know they were supposed to obey him. So the Russians still aren't in Kiev. Now, that should worry all of us because we have 17 intelligence uh, systems. We spend billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars, and they're wrong. Now, this yeah. should lead to really far more than just Joe Biden, fundamental reform of the American system so it works again.
All right, speak again, Rich. Always great to have you. Thank you, sir. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News' YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else. Okay, with great pleasure, joining me now is great friend, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who is also a Fox News contributor. Newt, great to see you. Great to see you this past weekend, you and Ambassador Callista. So, Newt, there's a million things to talk about, and I probably wasn't going to do this, but I'm reading all this stuff about Iran. My opening intro was about Iran. It is inconceivable to me that they would be pushing for an Iranian deal, giving a Russian construction company a $10 billion carve-out to build a nuclear plant of some kind on top of $11 billion for high... I mean, Newt, the whole thing is just inconceivable to me. I need help to understand this. Well... <clears throat> It shouldn't be inconceivable. You're old enough. You remember Jimmy Carter. Uh, just assume that uh, Biden is Jimmy Carter without ever going to the Annapolis to the Naval Academy uh, and without ever being a nuclear engineer. And then assume that Biden is surrounded by people who are a generation nuttier than the people who are around Carter. Uh, and you begin to sense what's going on. Look, I think Andy McCarthy's column this morning where he outlined the total dishonesty of the Biden administration which is apparently promising the Russians a whole series of deals uh, as long as the Russians help deliver the right kind of Iranian agreement. And remember, there are people in the Biden administration who see Iran as the counterweight to Israel. Uh, they really see this as an opportunity to shrink Israel's influence, to weaken Israel. Uh, and uh, I think that we underestimate how deeply uh, the anti-Israeli feeling is inside the Biden administration. Then add to that some strange fascination with Putin. I mean, uh, despite the words, uh, and my, I have a newsletter coming out tomorrow that outlines the difference between Zelensky's speech and Biden's speech, uh, it is pathetic. As an American, I am I'm ashamed that we have a government that is this unwilling to be helpful to a free people who are fighting to survive against a war. Even, even Biden has called him a war criminal. But of course, when Biden doesn't mean anything by it, that's just words to get through a news conference. Hmm. But Putin is a war criminal, and we ought to be dealing with him as a war criminal. You know, he won't take a whack at him in all of his speeches. I mentioned this last evening. I mean, Reagan, you know, Reagan coined the evil empire. All right. Reagan said, we win, you right. lose. Reagan said, tear down this wall. Biden says nothing. Biden's afraid to take him on rhetorically. I mean, when Zelensky asked Biden to be the leader of the free world and so forth, he was prodding him, it seems to me. But we don't get it. And, and Newt, let me just go back. What is this? This is some left-wing hatred of Israel, isn't it, that's buried in the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Absolutely. There's a deep feeling that Israel's too strong, too arrogant, too Jewish, to be honest, mm. and that therefore you uh, have to do something to shrink its power. And the people in charge of this negotiation have consistently for a decade been anti-Israel and been in favor of trying to strengthen Iran as a way of balancing off Israel, which frankly is an invitation to a major war in the Middle East. Mm. I mean, I think people really underestimate how dangerous this is. And remember, this is an Iranian dictatorship which even the Biden State Department says is the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world. It's a group of people who have actively have assassins in the United States trying to kill 
people like Mike Pompeo and, and Robert O'Brien, who you just had on a few minutes ago. And it's in a, a, a dictatorship which just fired rockets very close to the American consulate in Iraq. Um, the idea that you have a combination of Russia in the middle of trying to conquer Ukraine and Iran while it's trying to uh, terrorize the world, that's the, that's the team Biden is, likes. Mm. And, I, and I agree a lot with uh, Rick Perry. Biden doesn't like uh, anything about Texas oil or Oklahoma oil mm -hmm. or North Dakota oil. But boy, give him a chance to buy oil from dictators mm. and suddenly he feels good. This is, this is the strangest and most destructive American presidency, certainly in my lifetime uh, and maybe uh, for a century. Yeah, I think that's right. So let me just switch gears. Biden will blame Putin, pandemics, um, supply chains. He'll blame everybody for inflation uh, rather than your phrase, big government socialism, which is really the root cause of this thing. Too much stimulus, too much deficit spending, and um, plenty of welfare, but no work requirements. I mean, he won't face up to that either. Well, he can't face up to it. Look, you're dealing with people who are close to a religious group. Uh, Theodore White warned back in 1972 that ideology was becoming actually theology uh, and that uh, all of a sudden you had people who you couldn't negotiate with because you'd be violating their religious belief system. And that's what you've got. You know, uh, Biden made a speech uh, three nights ago to the Democratic National Committee. And in the entire speech, his only reference to, Iran, to Ukraine and Russia was a reference that if only we had more green energy, it wouldn't be yeah. a problem. In the entire speech. <laughs> and the whole speech was about global warming, where these people, frankly, I think really are the equivalent of religious fanatics. Boy, oh boy. Newt, the cavalry's coming. I hope it gets here in time. That's all I can say. And I hope when it gets here, it's sure. got an agenda like you put together way back in 1994. Anyway, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate it very, very much. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Our guest today is General David Berger, the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. General Berger is a leader in thinking about modernizing our military and specifically the Marine Corps. He's also a perfect person to ask about the strictly military aspects of the war in Ukraine that we're all following day by day, hour by hour. General Berger, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for coming. David, thank you for having me on this afternoon. So, uh, sir, I want to begin by uh, asking you a bit about the war in Ukraine, which, as I said, we're all following uh, with such uh, interest. Fr from a military perspective, uh, as the commandant of, of our Marine Corps, give us your sense of why the Russian uh, invasion force has seemed to have difficulty over these first three weeks of, of war. What do you specifically observe as problems for their force? Um, great question. A uh, couple thoughts. First, I think during a conflict, it's difficult to draw all of the deeper lessons learned. So some, of course, will come over time and a deeper analysis. But um, while the conflict is going on, a couple thoughts, perhaps. Uh, one is that Analysis, computer modeling uh, helps in some regards, but um, 
I would say if you ran the computer model on the Russian military versus the Ukraine military, it would it would give you a certain answer that said it probably wouldn't last all that long. But that's obviously not what's happening. And the reason I, I start there, sir, is uh, models, computer models can't, of course, factor in the human element. So before, you know, before someone were to talk about the Russian forces and, and how they are doing, I think you have to begin with the Ukrainian forces and how well they are doing and beginning with the information competition, the information space, which uh, I would say uh, Ukraine is, is winning. Um, they're also using the, what we would call in military terms, the strength of the defense, the inherent strength of the defense over the offense. Not a new concept um, since World War I, proven very difficult to break through a defense in depth, especially if that defense in depth is well-prepared, well-trained. And that can be whether it's land or or in the naval environment, either way, in other words, at sea, either way, a defense in depth is very difficult for any force to, to penetrate. And I, I would begin, first of all, with uh, Ukraine uh, and how well their forces are doing. I think they're proving to be very disciplined, very well-trained, very well-led, and uh, very inspired. One of the things that the people have noted is that the uh, Russians don't appear to be using ground infantry uh, effectively to accompany their armored forces. Uh, typically, you'd expect uh, uh, ground infantry to be moving uh, with tanks and armored vehicles as they approach to, uh, uh, an objective like uh, Kiev, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And I'm wondering uh, whether that strikes you uh, as, a, as a soldier, as a Marine, <laughs> Uh, as a, as a weakness in the in the in the Russian offensive, um, I don't know if I'd call it a. Uh, I would characterize it as a weakness because we don't really know all the reasons why. But at your point, uh, David, is spot on. Uh, most would in the military framework and our terminology, we would fight, we would call it fighting combined arms. Uh, probably another way to describe it is using maneuver to uh, bolster your fires or using fires to set up uh, your forces for maneuver. But in both cases, one without the other, as you accurately highlight, very, very ineffective. Um, one other possibility, and there I'm sure there are several, is that the picture that Ukrainian uh, uh, forces are, are uh, painting in front of the Russian uh, element is causing them confusion. In other words, their effectiveness at stripping away the reconnaissance uh, for the Russian forces, which is what Marines are very, very good at, is uh, it could be part of the equation. Said another way, if you're a Russian tactical commander right now on the ground, I'm not sure they have a good picture of what's in front of them. And I think Ukraine's doing a fantastic job of denying them. And this is the sort of, we would call it a scouting, counter-scouting role that the Marine Corps would play forward also. They're doing it very effectively. One other thing, uh, General Berger, that I, I've heard uh, uh, military analysts uh, discuss uh, is the seeming um, problem in uh, taking initiative at what we would think of as the NCO level. Uh, the, everybody's seen the uh, aerial pictures of the, the 
long, 40-mile-long convoy that's appeared stuck. And some people have noted that uh, it takes initiative, say from a sergeant, to say, I got to get out of this line. We're stuck here. And to move off the road and into a place where there's more uh, shelter, maneuvering uh, room, but that it comes down to, to that NCO-level decision-making. Do you think that's a, a factor in what we're seeing? It very well could be. Um, we've known for a very long time in the U.S. military that one of our strengths, which is difficult to understand if, you're, if you don't have a military background, is the way that we train and the way that we empower junior leaders to take initiative, as you pointed out, in lieu of detailed instructions from your boss, from your higher commander. We are trained, told to not wait for those detailed instructions, but to use your training and your judgment and your initiative. And that's how you generate tempo. That's how you generate momentum. We don't, you know, you would have to be inside the Russian leader's head to understand the real answers to your question, but it's entirely possible that they have a top-down very what we would call hierarchical sort of structure where junior leaders are not allowed, not permitted to make those kind of calls independently of instructions from above. Very different from the way that, uh, the, that a Marine leader would, would operate. A couple of more, a couple more practical questions, uh, General Berger, and then we'll, we'll move on to other uh, uh, broader subjects. But I want to ask you about, uh, again, a strength of the U.S. military over many decades uh, has been our ability with logistics to move people to supply uh, forces in, in combat. Logistics seems, from what we can tell, to have been a problem for the Russian invaders. Their tank columns uh, move forward, but they run out of fuel. Uh, they have other supply issues. It's not the most glamorous aspect of, of warfare, but talk a little bit about, about what you're seeing in terms of logistics and supply. Um, logistics is an area where, to your point, it's not uh, necessarily as fascinating, interesting, uh, to talk about as weapon systems or ma maneuver or intelligence. But in the end, as many others have already uh, said, professionals, professional military people, they talk logistics. I don't know if it's hubris on the part of the Russian uh, planners and leaders or just an assumption that the operation would not take very long and therefore no need to stack up logistics on the other side of the border. But in any event, your point is, is spot on. Um, there is, a, there is a, what we would call a culmination point where any military unit can go no further without resupply and you have to stop. And if you haven't planned for that in advance, um, you lose all momentum. And the last part I would say is you're seeing in Ukraine, if the, if the adversary, if the other side is very, is very uh, good at maneuvering, if they take individual initiative, then they can get at your backside, at your logistics trains, and Ukraine is doing that very, very effectively, sort of the soft underbelly at, at the tactical level to pinch your backside. And that really causes uh, Russian leaders, tactical leaders, more problems. Because the convoy, the resupply that they were planning now has to fight its way to get to you from Russia. Um, logistics absolutely has to be planned. We, we are very good at it globally 
in the U.S. military, uh, planned in depth. And uh, to your point, uh, you have to also make decisions beyond planning in execution that you have to be able to you have to be agile enough to adapt to the situation because it's not going to turn out exactly how you had planned it. This is the inherent flexibility of the marine structure, which is an aviation and ground and logistics team all built all built into one from day one. But you have to your point it in, in some cases, in many cases, it boils down to the logistics. Let me ask you a final question about what we're seeing in Ukraine. General Berger, and, and that's one of, of special interest, uh, I'm sure, to you, and that's the performance of Russia's amphibious forces operating uh, from the Black Sea uh, into the uh, Ukrainian coast. There have been some amphibious operations, not, not overwhelming, but what's your sense of, of how those amphibious forces are performing? Um, perhaps a couple. Um couple of thoughts there. One, no other operation that I know of is more complicated, more complex, uh, takes more preparation, um, practice, rehearsal than, a, than an amphibious operation, which is why uh, not all forces can do them. It takes, uh, again, a tremendous amount of practice and the right equipment, the right training to get you there. Um, so why has why didn't uh, the Russian amphibious forces do an amphibious landing earlier? Uh, perhaps they weren't prepared. Perhaps the Ukrainian forces had time to set a defense uh, along the coastline that caused them the Russian forces to to be concerned and delay. I don't know, but to me it highlights that it is the littoral area. In other words, the area between land and sea always a tough spot for anybody to operate. It is the unique amphibious role for us to play in the Navy together as a team. Um, defense is always going to be um, difficult to overcome if you don't have the mobility uh, like we have, where we can go ashore by vessels, we can go ashore by aircraft. Uh, we have multiple means to move from ship to shore and back again. If you don't have all those means and you don't have the competence, the skill sets that you need, it can be pretty intimidating to try to do forcible entry sort of amphibious assault from the sea. Um, we'll see in, you know, when we study this afterwards why they didn't go earlier and why they're, why they're held back as long as they are. But to me, it just highlights why we have to train on the, on the U.S. Marine Corps Navy side to such a high degree. It is a very complicated um, operation. Really grateful to get that assessment of some of the, the military uh, details from a member of, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Let me turn now, General Berger, to some other broader issues facing you as a Marine Commandant, starting with, with China, which uh, as uh, our, our senior leadership says is our pacing threat, uh, potential uh, challenge uh, in the future. Yes, uh, first, if you were a Chinese a PLA, Chinese military commander, looking at uh, the war in Ukraine, what lessons would you draw about uh, future conflicts that might involve China, in particular? Curious whether you, you think the Chinese leadership would be 
reassessing the difficulty of taking Taiwan by military force uh, in the future. I would, uh, without giving them, uh, um, without making an advert, you know, somebody 10 feet tall, I would say absolutely we should assume they're studying it. We are too. We're a learning organization. We should assume that the PLAN leaders are studying what's happening in Ukraine. I think it definitely should give them pause about uh, any degree of confidence that um, uh, an assault, an invasion of another country, of another uh, piece of land, and especially if it's across a body of water, is not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick. So um, I would think they're learning. And again, comparing Ukraine, as you as you uh, highlighted, where there everything is on land, you can go across roads to get to uh, from Russia to Ukraine, from Belarus to Ukraine. You cannot do that getting to Taiwan. So the everything from logistics to the sustainment, as you pointed out, um, then there's the then there's the aspect of all of the allies and partners that the United States has that. Um, should not be underestimated their ability to rally quickly. Uh, some perhaps thought uh, that NATO uh, would take a while to respond. Um, should not should not have underestimated uh, that alliance and the U.S.'s commitment to it. Same, I would say, in uh, our alliance with countries in the Indo-Pacific. So time, logistics, the, just the sheer difficulty of doing an amphibious operation. I would think they're definitely uh, trying to draw lessons learned, yeah. You've been doing a lot of thinking, uh, General Berger, with your uh, staff in the Marine Corps about the Indo-Pacific Theater and have come up with some new ideas about how the Marines might operate in the, in the South China Sea. Uh, you've got a, a concept that you call stand-in forces as opposed to traditional expeditionary forces that stand off and then come into the battle space when needed. You're, you're talking now about, about stand-in forces that are closer. Maybe for our viewers who are less familiar with these issues, you could just summarize uh, some of the thinking that you've been doing about th this theater, how the Marines might uh, operate in these uh, inner uh, island chains if we ever got in a situation, uh, heaven forbid, of uh, military conflict with China? Uh, I would start with uh, the concepts that the Marine Corps is working on, is developing, are, uh, uni are applicable around the globe. So they're not specific, not unique to one specific or to one um, region or one particular potential adversary there they have to be applicable around the world because the marine corps is the crisis response force for the country anywhere for the for the u.s anywhere on the globe um, stand-in forces is a response to not just china's but the changing character of war over the past i would say eight to ten years specifically where precision, long-range weapon systems um, that are very accurate have been proliferated, and that has led to um, uh, a defensive posture on the part of some nations like China that believes that they can deter, that they can control uh, 
uh, everything within the range of their long-range precision weapons, missiles largely, but not exclusively. So our approach is if the U.S. needed to operate inside that regime, it's not a either standoff or get inside. It's actually both. It's yes to both. I think the U.S. military has to be able to operate in, in great depth. And the Marine Corps' traditional unique role is up front uh, and standing in. And the value of what we call standing in is a couple things. You're there side by side, shoulder by shoulder with the, with the partners, with the allies that the U.S. has. You're not, you're not leaving them. You're not going back to the rear. You're staying right there side by side with them. Now, second, I think uh, very clear to us over the past few years, the value of painting a complete picture of what's in front of you tactically. That requires everything from satellites to a force forward to get as clear a picture of what the other side is doing. And day to day before a conflict were ever to break out, in other words, uh, long before the shooting starts, you want to be up there, want to be next to the allies, next to the partners, but also to paint a clear picture of what the other side is doing so that everything that they, every move that they make, you can make public if you choose to, to perhaps deter them from taking another step. So it's not a either standoff or stand in. It's, a, it's the whole depth of operation and the Marine Corps' unique role is to stand in and be ready to um, go on the offense if we need to. I want to ask you, General Berger, about uh, a critique that uh, a, a retired combat Marine named Bing West writes often about military issues, wrote in the National Review um, uh, this past month, uh, writing about what he described as your uh, anti-ship strategy operating uh, in the event of conflict uh, with, with China in the uh, inner island chain. And he said that he was concerned that, that this strategy uh, might be flawed because the Chinese, in his words, have pivoted toward Taiwan, that the Ukraine conflict shows that aggressors can pick uh, the battle space where they want to fight. And finally, he, he argued that to pay for your strategy, and we'll talk in a minute about your changes in the Marine Corps, you'd ha ha you've had to give up tanks, artillery, and air, and have less a combined uh, a force clout than, than, uh, than the Bing West thought was appropriate. How would you respond to that uh, kind of criticism of, of the strategic approach you've taken? I have a tremendous amount of respect, uh, respect for Bing West. He, we, most of us have read his writings for uh, many years and talked with him because he thinks on a, on a on the operational to strategic all the way down to the tactical level. So the debate, the discussion of warfare in general is a healthy one. Um, to your specific question, um, I, th I would flip that on its head and say part of what you're seeing in Ukraine and Russia using his example actually validates the direction that the Marine Corps is going. It confirms the need to have a force in close to paint a clear picture and be lethal and be mobile uh, in, the, in the face of a threat. I think we're, there is no uh, anti-ship strategy for the Marine Corps. 
the approach is to distribute naval and Marine Corps forces widely to be able to operate from ship or from shore for the purposes of controlling key parts, just like you would on land, where there might be a road intersection that you want to control. Well, at sea in the maritime environment, there are the equivalent of road intersections that the U.S. needs to hold open, needs to make sure are open and free. Well, that takes a force that's very comfortable in that maritime amphibious environment, which is us. To do that, you have to, to if you want to control an intersection you know, on land or you want to control the equivalent of that, a strait perhaps uh, at sea, then you need forces that are capable of doing that. And the Navy Marine Corps team is uniquely suited to. Um, there were three parts to your question, David. I don't I think I missed well, I, one of them. I think you I think you you responded to to the Bing West critique. I want to with the time that we have remaining talk to you about modernization of the Marine Corps. When you became a commandant, uh, you issued uh, commandant's guidance back in 2019, I think, which uh, had some pretty revolutionary ideas. You said there are a number of things the Marine Corps traditionally has done that we're just not going to do. They're, they're not going to be part of the, the future uh, combat environment where we're going to fight. Uh, and you and I have talked a good deal about uh, your uh, efforts to make those changes happen, in, in fact. Uh, for our viewers who, who, who may not have followed that in detail, just list two or three of the fundamental ways that you think the Marine Corps is different now uh, as, a, as a force than it was when you uh, first issued that uh, Commandant's guidance. One of the strengths of the Marine Corps is its ability to adapt uh, quickly and not after the fact, but in front of it. And that history goes back to World War II and earlier. So there's nothing unique that I started. It was a turn that the service was making before I ever became Commandant. Uh, I would begin perhaps by saying, first of all, today, this afternoon, we're very capable of, of any mission that the Secretary were, of Defense were to send us to. We are a crisis response force. We can handle the task now. But my job as a service chief's job is to make sure that you're also prepared two and five and 10 years into the future. So some things we will continue to do, but we will do it in a different way. I think amphibious landings, amphibious assault, forcible entry, those things which Marines are known for for 70 years, we'll continue to do, but we'll do them in a very different way. And why? Because the character of war is changing. We need to change with it. Instead of tank on tank formations, I would say if you looked at Armenia and Azerbaijan or Lebanon, or even right now in Ukraine, pretty clear that top-down sort of missile attacks on the top side of heavy armor makes it pretty vulnerable. So for us, tanks are, they did, they did tremendous work for us for many years in many different scenarios. Going forward, they are heavier, too difficult to logistically support, and in some cases, uh, vulnerable to attack from top, from a proliferation of very inexpensive missiles so in some cases, we've, we've let go of things that were very successful in the past in order to move towards things that we are going to need in the future. But the aviation ground logistics team that I mentioned before, that's the heart 
That's the strength of the Marine Corps, having it all organic. We are enabler kind of for the joint force. We're the first ones on the scene to figure it out, to sort it out. We need the mobility to do that, which means we need amphibious ships, which is critical for the nation to have. Right now, uh, you would you need to have the ability even today in Ukraine, especially I would say today, to have a crisis response force from the sea. That, that means we need to have the, the number of amphibious ships that's necessary to go global uh, in, in the Pacific or in the Mediterranean. And for the U.S., that's, that's 31 amphibious ships that we have to have in order to do what the nation needs us to do. So, General Berger, um, it, it's been a, a pleasure to have you uh, with us. A lot of people talk the talk about uh, modernizing the military. You've actually walked the walk with the Marine Corps, and we're grateful that you joined us on Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. David, thank you for having me on this afternoon. Thanks. So we hope you'll join us for other Washington Post Live programming. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to see what we've got coming up and to register for the programs that interest you. Thank you so much for joining me and, and General David Berger today.